Open your Bibles, please, to Luke 7, Luke 7.36. Luke 7.36, we'll be reading in a moment through the end of that chapter. It's on page 1027, if you're using the Red Pew Bible. Last week, if you were able to join us, we met a teenage girl standing in the cafeteria of her new high school, and she was trying to figure out where to sit. Remember the angst she was feeling. If she sat alone, then she would be perceived as this loner, this one who was a misfit and had no friends. But worse than that, if she sat with the wrong crowd, she might become known as a nerd or a geek or something like that. And so there was this concern on her part about who she would sit with. And we saw Jesus last week eating with, sitting at dinner with, all the wrong people. Sitting with tax collectors and sinners, with scumbags and prostitutes. And the Pharisees wondered what that said about him. Was he a sinner? At the very least, maybe he was clueless that all those around him were sinners. Either way, this man Jesus, who was presuming to be a prophet and the Messiah from God, he should have known better than to eat with tax collectors and sinners. This Jesus was getting something of a reputation because of the company he was keeping. But our freshman, our young woman standing in the cafeteria, for her there is a social faux pas that's even bigger than sitting at the table with the out crowd. Imagine instead that she accidentally sits at the A-list table. All the cool seniors, the captain of the football team, the head cheerleader. What if this mere freshman, this ordinary-looking girl who gets average grades, who's just the middle of the pack, what if she dared to sit at the table of the cool kids? She would endure mocking she would endure scoffing. They would make fun of her. Hey, Heather, look who thinks she's all that and can sit here at your table. Heather, this girl, out of nowhere, thinks she belongs with you and your friends. And they would mock her. Our poor freshman girl would be embarrassed, or at least she ought to be embarrassed, but imagine for a moment that in the midst of the ridicule and scorn being heaped upon her, she ignores it all and stays there. Why? Because she is that desperate to be near heaven. That's the scene at today's dinner with Jesus. A woman who simply doesn't belong crashes the party and doesn't seem to understand that she is unwanted and ought to leave. She ignores all the hubbub and consternation around her, and she just stays put. Not because she wanted to be near the captain of the cheerleading squad, but because she loved Jesus. If last week's account revealed a Jesus who was willing to go to lengths to be with us, this week, we see the desire in the other direction. 
a sinner desperate to be with Jesus. Join me now as we look closely at Jesus through the lens of this sinner in love with him. Turning in your Bibles to Luke 7, 36. Hear now the word of Almighty God. One of the Pharisees asked him, Jesus, to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with ointment. Now when the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, I'm sorry, and when the Pharisee, singular, who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered, answered, saying to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the infallible, inerrant, authoritative word of the Almighty God. Let's seek his guidance in understanding it. Holy Spirit, breath of God, breathe your word into us today that we might love Jesus as much as this woman. Amen. This story is loaded. There is so much going on in this scene. And for that reason, without any further illustration or introduction, I'm just going to jump in to try and explain and unpack these events. So the first thing I'm going to say is this. All four of the gospel accounts record Jesus being anointed at a dinner in the house of a man named Simon. And yet there is really good reason to believe that Luke alone tells a different story than the other three. Matthew, Mark, and John all place this event late in Jesus' earthly ministry. Luke places it very early. 
Matthew, Mark, and John all speak of Simon the leper. Luke alone refers to him as a Pharisee, and Simon was a common name, so it's easy to imagine more than one of them. Matthew, Mark, and John all place this in Bethany. Luke has him in Galilee when this occurs. Matthew, Mark, and John all make reference uh, to the, the consternation not being from the host, but from the disciples. And their consternation is not about the character of the woman, but about the expense of the ointment. Luke alone shows this being about the woman. This is a different account. Apparently, there was more than one time in his ministry and Jesus was anointed publicly at a dinner by a woman. This one is different from the others. Now, with that said, let's dive into this scene and try to understand it. And this is quite the scene. Now, to really understand, I think we need to know a few facts about a dinner party in the ancient Roman world. The wealthy, and most Pharisees were generally part of the upper class, the wealthy had homes with open-air dining areas. And those were generally accessible from the street. You see, this was the social media of their day. It wasn't about how many Instagram followers you had or how many people followed you on Twitter. It really was about how many people saw you eating with the A-listers of the community. It really was about that poor schmo working nine to five, walking home in the evening and looking in and seeing you dining with the who's who of the local town. This really was a status thing. And so if we understand that it was an open air dining area, that it was accessible to the street, all of a sudden we realize that this woman hasn't had to break down a front door to get in. Well, then we add to the fact that this, it was not uncommon that if the discussion around your dinner were interesting, some of the passers-by would stop and listen and even occasionally participate. Now, Jesus was all the rage. He was the national newsmaker. Everybody knew about this Jesus of Nazareth. There was a lot of hubbub surrounding him. So on this day, at this dinner party, the passers-by, there's quite a crowd that has formed out in the street. So now we see that this woman, not only did she not have to break down a door, but it was actually quite easy for her to hide in the crowd and to slip in to this dinner party. If you were picturing a, 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 a modern home with a closed, you know, front door closed and everybody in the dining room, that ain't going to be what we have here. Now, there's another thing we need to understand. Luke describes Jesus as reclining at table. To help you picture this, there's actually in your bulletin on page, I think it's 13, there's actually a picture, an artist rendering of what an ancient table might have looked like. You see, the, there would have been a table at the center of the gathering, and around it on three sides, there would have been this couch, you know, called a triclinium, three sides. This kind of couch. And you would lay sort of on your side on this couch with your torso, your head up toward the table, toward one another, so you could have a conversation. Your feet would be out behind you. 
And the third, the fourth side was left open so servants could bring new food to the table. And you could have this conversation around the table in this semi-recumbent position. And thus it is that she could easily get to Jesus' feet. In fact, she could probably be at his feet before he even knew she was there. If you are picturing Leonardo da Vinci's Last Supper with everybody sitting at a traditional Western-style table, you got it all wrong. Even with just the four of us at our little kitchen table, and, you know, Tigga can't get under there with Pie's big feet, I mean, Pie's fluffy uh, slippers. Um, Tigga can't get under there to get to our scraps and our feet. There's no way this woman would have gotten under that kind of table. But that's not the scene. She is instead able to access Jesus' feet, which are out behind him. So, we're not picturing a modern house with a closed-in room and, a, and, and chairs with your feet under a traditional dining table. Rather, Jesus, well, it would have been traditional for them, Jesus is at this triclinium couch with his feet out behind him in an open-air setting accessible to the street. So now we understand a little bit more how this took place. So let's talk about the woman and look at her a little more closely. She's a prostitute. And I am sorry if you weren't here last week for the fuller explanation and proof of that. But the language used here is the language used of prostitutes. She is a sinner. And the only people who could be labeled so freely as sinners were those who were sinners publicly. And generally the only ones who were sinners publicly were the ones who were standing on the street corners. Also we see Simon uh, thinking to himself that Jesus should know what sort of woman this is. Again, that's the language used for the sexually loose. She's a hooker. This is now the second meal at which Jesus has been seen in association with the working girls. And at the first, they were the invited guests. This time, she's a party crasher. And she is quite the party crasher. Simon, our host, is a respectable man. Unlike the last dinner thrown by Levi, a tax collector, Simon is a Pharisee. And the Pharisees, you may recall, were committed to keeping God's law perfectly. And as such, they were generally highly regarded. They were generally in the community well-respected. Now, they were never as regarded and as respected by others as they were among themselves, but nevertheless, society generally looked on them positively. He is a respectable man living a quiet, respectable life, and this woman off the street comes crashing in, this woman whom everybody knows to be a prostitute. Again, like we did last week, to help us understand this, let's modernize it. Let's pull it into today's world. There's a guest speaker coming to town. If you're on the uh, uh, older end of our congregation, maybe think to yourself, a young Billy Graham. Maybe you're, maybe you know Vadi Bakum. Picture Vadi Bakum coming into town. Maybe you're familiar with, you know, I don't know, a young Alistair Begg. Maybe he's the guy you like to follow. One of these renowned preachers causing a stir in the religious world is coming to our church. And the chairman of the deacon board is hosting him, a respectable man. 
And they're all, everybody is gathered, all the leaders of the church and their wives are all gathered in this home to hear from this young preacher. And everybody is gathered around together talking theology over a perfectly respectable dinner. And then there bursts into the room an uninvited guest. It's tough to say what would catch your eye first about this intruder. Probably depends on whether you're a man or a woman. The women, they probably see enough paint on her face to make up four or five of their respectable peers at that table. The men, there's a pretty good chance that they've noticed the neckline plunging so far south that General Sherman would have been put to shame. And everyone Notice the short skirt. A loincloth might have been more modest. Everything about this woman screams inappropriate, tacky, even slutty. But she knows no other way. She could not have fit in among those women at that party any more than they could have fit into that skirt. It is immediately obvious what type of woman she is, and whether she's a professional who works for the money or just a desperate woman who gives it up for a few hours of something that resembles lovemaking and affection. Either way, this is a sexually loose woman in a room full of sexually respectable people. Awkward. But it gets worse. Her attire and her appearance are not the only thing out of place. She's touching the guest preacher. Not just touching him, but caressing him. And everybody there is feeling awkward on his behalf. Oh my, don't look now. But she just let down her hair and is wiping his feet with it. And I know that doesn't grab you and me. In our culture, a woman letting down her hair is really no big deal. But in that time and that place, that was an intimate, bedroom-only activity. The New Testament scholar Joel Green put it this way, letting her hair down in this setting would have been on a par with appearing topless in public. Professor Green goes on to summarize that the woman is treating Jesus like a client. What was momentarily awkward when this woman burst into the room has quickly degenerated into an outright scandal. The host is horrified. Many of the wives are enraged. Probably more than a few of the men are aroused. And where things go from here all hangs on how this guest preacher responds. How he handles this moment will set the tone for the rest of the evening. I'm amazed at those who can deftly and graciously handle an unexpected social interaction. And I have never met anyone who defined unexpected social interaction more than my cousin. We'll call her Alice. Alice was born with a condition that severely limited her mental and social development. 
Her vocabulary never advanced beyond that of a typical toddler, about 600 words, give or take. And her social interactions were also stunted and remained those of a toddler. So it was that Alice would, even in her mid-30s, come into a social setting and just sit in someone's lap and snuggle up to them. Me? I'm thrown off when a hipster offers a bro hug rather than a handshake. But some people, they can instantly read the scene and respond appropriately. Those people recognized that Alice wasn't being inappropriate. Rather, she was showing love and affection in the only way she knew how. Alice's life made it impossible for her to display affection in the ways that we find socially acceptable and appropriate for a 30-year-old woman. But she wanted to show affection, and so she did. And the most gracious of people simply rolled with it. They saw it for what it was, and they accepted it and reciprocated it. Now, can you imagine a woman in her 30s in a public setting sitting in the lap of a teenage boy and giving him a hug like she was three? I was always so amazed and so proud of our sons and our nephews as they welcomed Alice with hugs and warmth and grace. They didn't expect her to conform to their social standards. They knew she couldn't. And they accepted the love she showed in the way she showed it. The party crasher in Simon's home wasn't socially stunted by a birth defect, but she was socially stunted. Girls with loving families and stable homes did not generally end up as prostitutes in that society. Rather, they lived at home with mom and dad until they got married. Thus, the odds are really, really good that the woman in this scene has never had that kind of appropriate, loving experience. She simply doesn't know how to show affection properly. As I mentioned earlier, there are those who would have shown affection in order to increase their profits, And there would be those who were simply so desperate for attention that they would use their sexuality so someone would pay attention to them for at least a few minutes of something that might be loosely called lovemaking. Either way, this woman, just as my cousin Alice would have sat on Jesus' lap, this woman letting down her hair and caressing and kissing Jesus, is the only way she knows how to love him. And Jesus accepts it. Jesus doesn't scold the woman. Jesus doesn't push her back at arm's length and try to change the hug into a handshake. Jesus doesn't take off his sport coat and try to cover her cleavage. Jesus doesn't seem to care one iota about the awkwardness of this woman's affection. He simply appreciates it for what it is, affection. Instead, 
Jesus doesn't initially react to her at all, but to Simon, the host. We've modernized this story from the woman's perspective, but we need to look briefly at events from the host's vantage point. Simon, this chairman of the deacon board, we said, the one hosting this guest preacher and all the prominent church leaders, for whatever other reactions he might have had, maybe initially some shock or some embarrassment, what Luke reveals to us about Simon's reaction is very telling. Look at verse 39. What does Luke tell us? Now, when the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. This guest preacher that I've invited into my home, he claims to have insight from God. But it doesn't take divine insight to read this scene. Obviously, this woman is a hooker. Come on. She is so clearly a street-walking girl. They could use her as the model for street-corner Barbie. In the midst of all the commotion, Simon is not judging the woman. He's judging Jesus. After all, he thinks to himself, She is who she is, and we all know it. But this new guy, Jesus, now we know more about him. He's not a godly man, after all. In fact, Jesus gives every appearance of perhaps being known to this woman. We're going to go on to find out that her sins have been forgiven. Maybe she's been part of the crowd earlier and Jesus forgave her sins. Maybe she simply heard Jesus' teaching and believed what he said and hoped in the forgiveness that he offered and her sins have been forgiven. One way or another, she seems to know Jesus. And so you can probably guess what's in Simon's mind. Huh. Wonder if this guy's a client. Wonder if that's how they know each other. And then Luke does something fascinating. In verse 39, the Pharisee said to himself, but in verse 40, Luke says, Jesus, answering, said to him, Simon, I have something to tell you. I don't know whether or not Simon connected what he thought with what Jesus said next, but Luke wants to be sure we connect them. If Simon missed the fact that this Jesus is truly a prophet from God. Luke does not want us to miss that fact. If Simon thinks, well, he doesn't seem to understand who this woman is, Luke is telling us, not only did he understand who this woman was, but he understood who Simon was as well. And what Jesus says next is important. Not only was it important in that time and that place, but it's important for our understanding of this text. For you see, this passage could be quickly and easily misconstrued. Almost instinctively, we turn to a text like this, and we think it's a lesson on the grace of God, the compassion of Jesus. Look how Jesus is so kind to this woman. And to be sure, the grace and compassion of Jesus are on display. 
And we've pointed that out, and we were right to do so. Jesus graciously accepts the awkward affection of this prostitute. But that's not the main point Luke is teaching, because it was not Jesus' main point. What Jesus says, the lesson the teacher teaches to Simon is not strictly about God's grace, but about our response to God's grace. And to make this point about anything other than what Jesus made it about is to miss the Holy Spirit's message in favor of our own. This account in Luke's Gospel is not primarily about the grace of God, but about our attitude toward the one whom God sent. This is why we sang, crown him with many crowns. Fairest Lord Jesus, there is a higher throne. And we will close with, oh, worship the King. Because it's about how we respond to the one whom Jesus has sent. And so to bring this point home, Jesus tells a parable of two debtors, each forgiven their debt. But the one was forgiven ten times more than the other, and Jesus asked a simple question. Which debtor will love the moneylender more? And Simon's answer, though it shows some reluctance with his little I suppose in the middle of it, nevertheless, Simon's answer is correct. The one forgiven the larger debt will love the forgiver more. When I was a headmaster at the Christian school in Pennsylvania, the teachers and I were often concerned about the students' lack of singing, lack of enthusiasm for singing in chapel. But over time, we came to understand that those teenagers, even the high schoolers, they simply had not lived as long as we had. They had not sinned as much as we had. And they had not appreciated the forgiveness of Christ as much as we had. You see, the teachers, the old fogies in the room, some of us were even over 30. Yeah, if you've not worked with teenagers, you don't get that joke. But we were old. And we had sinned a lot. And we sang those songs with gusto because we appreciated the forgiveness we had in Christ. That's kind of the point here. The one who's been forgiven much loves much. And with the parable of the two debtors out there, Jesus then explains what is really on display in this scene. Look at verse 44. And I'm going to read now through the end of the text with Several comments interspersed. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? The question is dripping with sarcasm and irony. Remember, Simon is convinced that Jesus doesn't see her for who she really is. And Jesus' point is, Simon, you don't see her for who she really is. And Jesus says to, you know, he's about to reveal to Simon, you have failed to understand her. Do you see this woman? I entered your house. Your house, Simon. You're the host. You gave me no water for my feet. In a place of dirt roads and a time of sandals, it was customary to offer water to your guests so they might wash their feet. If I came to your home, you would offer to take my coat. 
You might offer to give me a drink. You might show me where the facilities are if I should have need of them. There are certain things you just do when somebody arrives at your house. And back then, one of those things was, oh, by the way, there's the water so you can wash your feet. And Simon had not done that. Jesus goes on. She has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. Simon, this woman you detest, she has taken the routine kindness you should have offered, and she's gone above and beyond using tears rather than water and her hair rather than a towel. Verse 45, you gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. I mentioned earlier I'm a handshaker. I'm married into a family of kissers. Took me a little while to adjust. It is, in some cultures, the standard expected greeting. You kiss your guests. Simon did not. Simon doesn't really revere Jesus. Oh, yeah, I've invited you over to my home. Oh, yeah, you're the guest of honor. But you're not here because I think highly of you. You're here for me to judge Jesus points out the contrast. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. It's less clear in my research whether anointing with oil was a standard greeting, like the foot washing and the water feet and the, the, the kissing would have been. But the point here is simply oil, olive oil, would have been relatively cheap and common back then. This ointment, and that has some medical connotations. This is really kind of a high-end perfume, one of those $100 an ounce type things, okay? And it was standard for women to carry that back then since showers were not readily available and there was no antiperspirant and it was a hot climate. Keeping perfume on you was kind of a necessity, especially for a professional woman. But this high-end perfume is what she is using on his feet. And Jesus is making a contrast. You didn't give me simple olive oil. She's anointing me with expensive perfume. Therefore I tell you, Simon, verse 47, her sins, which are many, isn't that interesting? Simon, you didn't think I knew what kind of woman she was. I do. I know her sins are many. I know what she's done. I know full well all the wretchedness of her life. But Simon, look at the love she's pouring out. What does that mean? What does that prove? And Jesus says that her sins, which are many, are forgiven. How do I know that? For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And by implication, Simon, you show no love for me at all, which means you have been forgiven not at all. And of course, Simon's thinking to himself, that's because I don't need it. That's because I don't have any sin to forgive. I am, after all, a Pharisee. And I've kept the law perfectly. And Jesus said to her in verse 48, and Jesus said to her, that is to say Jesus confirmed to her, your sins are 
forgiven. Just so we don't get our doctrine of justification all backwards. It was not her affection which saved her. It was not her acts of love which brought about forgiveness. We are not saved by our good works, even by works of love done for Jesus. Her love, her acts of affection, Jesus says, were the evidence that she was forgiven. And how do we know this? He closes out her conversation with her. He dismisses her with these parting words. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. I wish that I were clever enough to have planned all the elements of this worship service, but I'm not. When I mapped out the catechism way back in September, I didn't even know we were going to be doing this sermon series, let alone this sermon on this day. And yet our catechism questions this morning really do bring the point home for us very nicely. It's almost as if someone else was in control of all of this. Question number three said, what do the scriptures principally teach? The scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. And what did question number one summarize for us? What is the chief duty God requires of man? It is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. The question this morning is simply this. Do you, like this woman, do you know that you have been forgiven much. And therefore, would you gladly love Jesus much? Or like our man Simon, do you imagine yourself to be pretty good, to actually be so good as to stand in judgment of Jesus and evaluate him, not really needing him at all, keeping him at arm's length, maybe willing to engage him in some intellectual, theological discussion, but never embracing him, kissing him, fawning over him. We saw last week that Jesus wants to commune with us, eat with us, identify with us. And the question Luke puts to us this week is how do you respond to that? Are you willing to run to him, throw yourself at his feet. Give him the praise and glory and honor and love he deserves. It really is a return to your membership vows. Do you acknowledge yourself to be a sinner in the sight of God, justly deserving his displeasure and without hope, save in his sovereign mercy? And question number two. Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God and Savior of sinners? And do you receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he is offered in the gospel? You see, our Old Testament and New Testament reading, they talked about all the things that would cause death. They talked about even how if you were a defiant child, you were to be stoned to death. I am so glad my parents did not enforce that literally. And the New Testament reading talks about how the following people with these sins are not going to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And it rattles off all these terrible sins. And then what does Paul say? 
But such were some of you. But you were washed. You were made clean. You were fixed by Jesus. That ought to spark the response of this woman right here. We ought to be like her. Not caring what anybody thinks about us publicly, but wanting to love Jesus. Her sins were forgiven, though her sins were much. Simon's sins may have been few indeed, but those few were still on his rank because he was not trusting Jesus to forgive them. He was proper. He was fitting. He was socially acceptable. She simply fell before Jesus and thanked him. What is the chief end of a saved sinner? It is to glorify God and enjoy him by loving Lord, we cannot do this on our own. We are so worried about what people will think of us, how we will look, how we will be uh, accepted, how we'll be talked about. But show us anew our sin. Show us anew the forgiveness we have in Christ. And let us be more like this woman. Loving Jesus. Fawning over him talking about him, spending on his behalf, doing things that demonstrate how much we appreciate and respect and honor and adore him. And when people come to us and say, stop acting that way, you're embarrassing yourself, let us respond, you don't understand. Jesus forgave me. as we recognize that in ourselves, help us also to be beacons of that forgiveness to those around us. We pray this in his name.